hope you're hungry. The table is set. Join us for another cosmic feast. Welcome back, everybody. Season two, episode four. I feel like this is a Halloween episode because it's kind of a Halloween-like title for the book that we're basing the episode on. Kind of, yeah. Tell us what the book is that we are covering. Well, today I'm going to... Basically, I'm going to tell you a bunch of different stories from uh, a book called Strange Creatures from Time and Space. This is a book written by John Keel in 1970. Uh, John Keel, as you know, is our uh, famous author from season one where David covered the Mothman prophecies. So we're kind of doing another little throwback to a a goodie, oldie but a goodie. And actually, this book came out before the Mothman prophecies, um, five years before. So... This is even even more of a throwback. Um, so so yeah, strange creatures from time and space. What are these strange creatures? What do we already know about them? What do we still need to learn about them? So on and so forth. <laughs> We've got some great tales coming up that I'm sure will make your skin crawl. <laughs> He's a great writer and a great researcher. Anybody who is kind of curious about reading about the supernatural that knows nothing about it or, or just hasn't read any books about it. I highly recommend his books. Um, like the Mothman prophecies turned out to be an incredible book about not just the Mothman, but the UFO phenomenon. There were a ton of men in black that were in town around that whole story, which I think were omitted those, that aspect of the book was omitted from the film. That makes sense. Cause it's kind of its own story in a way. And it just doesn't fit into a movie about it's a creature feature about um, right. the bird moth man. So is this book, this book always seemed to me like it was about like fantastic beasts kind of book of like, just like many different experiences and different creatures. You know, it's so funny that you say that because um, after finishing the book, I was kind of just looking up stuff about the book um, that I didn't read in the book. And um, they I, I found out that there's a, uh, a revised version of this book that was re-released um, with updated information in 1994, so about 25 years later. And uh, he retitled it The Complete Guide of Mysterious Beings. And when I read oh. that title, it, that's exactly what my mind went to is, what are they even called? The, the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find yeah. Them? Yeah. Yes, that, exactly. Sad, sadly, not the best movies but but a great idea <laughs> a, gr- a decent first film for sure but but yeah, you- I enjoyed it so what are the headlines for this I've got some good headlines here today so we'll, we'll just go in order scientist or skeptic demon household pets the hairy ones soil testers from outer space blood freaks conundrums in the sky and mysteries of the sea Oh, those are all so good and they're different. (laughs) And of course, I visualized giant hairy Yeti testicles when you said hairy ones. I don't know why. Yeah. Okay. I love it. I'm loving it. I can't wait till we get there. Yeah. I'm excited to see what that is. Or maybe they were like critters. Maybe they're like the critters. Remember those movies? No. I don't know. I guess you'll just have to listen and find out, David. I'm excited. I'm excited. (laughs) 
Sydney's Sydney's episode are always so so seamless and and they they flow they flow like they're seamless because you you can just listen and enjoy it's like you get to be on the the entertainment side you know instead of like your mind racing and being like I have to cover all this information ah which is why we switch every other episode because otherwise one of us would be clinically insane (laughs) (laughs) exactly so tell me which creature are we starting with or where does it begin the Mothman prophecies begin so strange with him like showing up to people's houses people thinking that he's a mysterious being where does this one begin because i haven't read this one well actually sidebar this one begins with um a little recap on our author john keel what do we already know about him (laughs) he's gonna be our first creature that we cover he is Um, he is definitely one of them Give me like a, a one sentence uh, summary of John Keel that you remember based off of the books that, of him that you've read. I mean, he's just the most terrific writer, investigator. I mean, for me, one of the details about him that I absolutely love about his research is that he refuses to give any information to the people he interviews about other cases. Even if it's like that person's neighbor had a similar experience, he will not, he would not sit down with somebody and disclose any details about anything. He would wait for them to like bring things up. And over yeah. the years, the way he advanced ufology and our study into men in black and the phenomenon was by picking up on very strange patterns that he would find in the phenomena. Like basically like the detail that we covered with the, the, the Mothman prophecies where he, he picks up on the fact that for some reason they have new clothes that look like they've never been worn before, like taken right off the rack. Like yeah. you, it's one thing to have new clothes. It's another thing to have the tags on and for it to look like you just like ran into a store and ran out and, you know, just like look super bizarre. They don't fit them. Just little details about things like that. I mean, it really, I was impressed with with how all over the place the Mothman was as far as covering historical cases. And, you know, I loved all his research into the mass sightings that were going on of UFOs in the late 1800s, which were known as like kind of like the airship sightings, like totally mm-hmm. something out of a Miyazaki film, steampunk Ships, mm-hmm. like instead of appearing like these technological things, they were appearing. It was as Howl's something. moving castle. <laughs> sure, exactly. But does that thing fly? I don't know. Does this thing fly? Uh, I it think just... it did both. It like walks around and then it kind of jumped up toward oh, the end of the movie. How how was so cool. He was so cool. But it is. but yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it was there. There were ships that were reflecting technological advancement for like the late 1800s, right? And so it kind of builds into this theory that he's developed where, you know, does this phenomenon change what it looks like? Can it just change what it looks like based on the time that's going on, based on its intention towards us? Like, is this more fear-based? Is this about creating a reaction out of us? Is this about controlling us? And and really, just something that Jacques Vallée, talking about in the last book that we covered, where it's like, is this more about changing the course of history over time uh, based on based on different influences? So... Yeah, so he's a great researcher. I think he was a journalist, and he's a terrific writer. David, that was a beautiful sentence. Thank you. Um, In addition to everything that David so kindly shared um, about John Keel and his amazing life, I have some fun facts that I 
uh, were at the top of this book that I that I was like, oh, I, I didn't know this previously from the Mothman episode, so I wanted to share it now. Um, and the first one is that John Keel was born in Silver Lake, New York, which they are, that town is self-acclaimed as what we call monster country. Um, and we'll get into that later, but that's kind of a fun little fact. John Keel wrote articles about UFOs before they blew up in the 50s and were very popular and stuff. He was kind of, he kind of uh, spearheaded that whole, like, writing about uh, sightings and and uh, traveling around the U.S. to hear every, everyone different stories. He also produced a Halloween show while he lived in Germany, which is such a fun little fact. I'm like, what? I need to know more about this Halloween show now. He saw his first saucer in 1954 while he was in Egypt on, uh, he, he was like on some Egyptology kick trying to learn about uh, ancient Egyptians and, and how they might connect with UFOs. And he also spent weeks tracking the abominable snowman in Tibet, which we'll talk about later. It, he he self-describes himself as an open-minded skeptic, which I think is a really nice term, actually. Open-minded skeptic. It's I, I feel like I can define myself as that as well. You know, I'm, I'm always open to the possibility that there is more out there, but that doesn't mean that I am a believer or a non-believer, so... Yeah, he he and he does come across that way. In fact, he's right. so he's so skeptical that his brilliance comes in when it's like even the UFO phenomenon does not impress him. Even like angelic beings do not yeah. like completely brainwash him. He wants to know like okay, they might present themselves as a certain way, but what what really is the intention here and its relationship with us? So following that open-minded skeptic, uh, John Keel like opens up the book and he he's talking about scientists and how um, science by and large is like a bunch of bull. They're just like they, they only uh, stick to like hard, uh, cold hard facts and they aren't open to the fact that a, um, a seemingly biological impossibility could still potentially exist. Um, and this is something that will occur throughout this episode that, uh, you, you know, like people will see something that they don't recognize and it, it'll just be denied by science immediately because it's like, well, we haven't previously explored that and discovered it on our own, so therefore it must not exist, right? Um, well, maybe is he against science itself or more like the scientific community and these organizations that like tend to ignore the study of certain things? Because he's a bit of a, he he's a bit of a scientific mind in a way. Right, um, right, yeah. Um, I think I think science in, like, in and of the definition of the subject itself is not what he's talking about. He's he's more talking about the people that are behind science that um, will deny rumors or sightings or, you know, strange anomalies just sure. because. Um, and this is something we've covered before with the whole, like, Alan J. Hynek thing, Project Blue Book, yeah, you know, I all mean, the things that were, like, de-hype, de-hype. The idea, um, that, the idea that scientific organizations are not funded and that funding is not political and that, that that there are no politics involved with certain yeah. branches of science, certain universities. He describes two different scientists, actually. And so I, I think I think this might answer your question, too. Um, he So type A are the scientists who work for large corporations. They're like proven producers, like using science to further our knowledge, you know, biologically, technologically so on and so forth. But these are not public faces, right? 
Um, and then there's the type B scientists who are seeking publicity and they're quoting all the type A scientists and they teach in schools and universities and, and they write these big reports that they want everyone to read because they're so smart and good at their job and what they do. Right. So those are the, those are the two kind of scientists that, that he describes and, and we'll, sure. uh, we'll kind of cover those as we go along as well. But I, I think that might answer your question about his skepticism behind science as a whole. Right? Sure. It's more about the people behind it and um, their interpretation of it rather than, you know, the whole like the scientific method of taking a hypothesis and, and testing it and proving or disproving it, you know, and sometimes people will just skip those steps and be like, we're not even going to acknowledge that that could be potentially a hypothesis that this could exist. And- yeah, it's tough. You know, I, I think, I think people like Jack Valley and, and a lot of the scientists that he comes in contact with, you know, I think they sort of show that like there is an underground, there are underground conversations and meetings where people do discuss taboo subjects and they are more open. It's just that in general, they're not very open when it comes to discussing or publishing or presenting or anything. And and if you look at John Keel's life, it is very much at odds, at odds with what's socially acceptable. I mean, it, we, we established this from the beginning that this is a taboo subject and always was. Like now it's starting to be more, people are more open-minded to it, but it's it's always been a taboo subject. And of course he, he must be sort of against that, right? Because he wants to say, yeah. okay, well, why why is this off limits? <laughs> like, why don't we study this? People are being affected by this. I think, like you said, he's very much like Jack Vallée in that sense that, um, that he kind of is just, he's here to record the information and put it down in a book and not be afraid to deny it just because someone else says that they saw it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Even though if it does sound like crackheaded and these people are insane, you know, it's like, why, why does that information not still need to be recorded? Well, there comes a learning. Yeah. There comes a point where a skeptic and I forget, you know, Joe Rogan had this skeptic on who was trying to speak against, I forget who it was, but, but the skeptic basically proved that like when you're such a skeptic that you're completely closed off to the facts and to the possibilities of other theories, now you've become mm. completely unscientific in in a sense. Now you have completely closed off the idea of like evidence or anything, proving anything. So being against that kind of skeptical to the point of a cult I mean, you can get into this with with religion too. I feel like extreme atheists are almost like culty in a way. Like you're creating your own religion by denying religion, if that makes sense. It's, you know, it's just like a you, you go past the point of no return, and all of a sudden you're circling back on your on the own things that you're saying. <laughs> that I can see that. I mean, it's and I think ultimately it's all aimed towards feeling like you're in control, like you know the answers. And and maybe power, this maybe power. the scariest thing about the UFO phenomenon is admitting that we're not in control and we don't know. We don't we have no idea. Yep. We don't know if it's a simulation that we're in. We don't know if we're up against like this insane galactic community of beings that love to mess with us. Like we, we really don't know. Or if it's just like I, I don't even know. And and this was John Keel in nineteen seventy, so now it's been fifty years and we still don't know. <laughs> Exactly. Um, there was a really good example of of this uh, denying of science that uh, he put in the book that I just had to quote. Um, so this is this is 
quoted from um, uh, a scientist named Paul de Chailu um, when he visited the Congo. He recorded this this uh, uh, sighting of a creature. He said there was a creature nearly six feet high with an immense body, a huge chest, great muscular arms, and fierce, glaring, large, deep gray eyes. He beat his breast with huge fists till it resounded like an immense bass drum. It was and Michael it turns out Phelps. He was describing a gorilla. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. <laughs> it was not Michael Phelps, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Paul, aka the first man to discover a gorilla, first white man to discover a gorilla in the Congo. Also, also the first man to have his limb ripped off by a gorilla. So <laughs> crazy. Exactly. Uh, All right. Weird so correlation there. So so how do we get into this? Like, where where does he choose to to dig in? Yeah. Well. Basically, he says that it's it's um, to the authority of the witnesses that um, they're the only acceptable group in strange sightings that can be our opening into proving whether or not something could be biologically possible. And that it doesn't really matter if it's possible or not. It's more just like these are the people who saw it. This is their story. Right? Yeah, and for this, and for a scientific community to say, "Oh, it's based on eyewitness accounts." Well, all of that's garbage. So, is this is this book compiled of stories over the years, or is this does this center on a location the way Mothman does? No, it's it's uh, it's very much so. Like paragraph by paragraph is just a different story of something that correlates with something else, and oh, wow. he kind of divides the book up by by subject matter. So, okay. um, as you heard in the headlines, it's like there's like the monsters of the sea, there's the monsters of the sky, and the monsters of the land and stuff. So, okay. we're we're gonna, we're gonna actually start with demon household pets. Okay, oh because I thought that'd be fun. Makes me think of very pet cemetery, but um, my cat just I don't know. looked at me um, like you don't want to know. <laughs> He's like, close your ears. You don't want to know. So this is this this might be a, a tough question, but I guess what what's the first thing that comes to mind when when you when you hear that title? Um, what Some, do we already know about demon household pets, if anything? Uh, well, the first thing that comes to mind, honestly, is pet cemetery, where you have like this yeah, demonic. Yeah cat right that that comes right. back from the dead but this is kind of like a zombie cat right yeah so in more of the the creature you know currently living not reliving kind of sense um i'm thinking we're talking about like vampires werewolves you know like more creaturey kind sure. of chupacabra um, demon like. dogs phantom cats exactly exactly so what i'm so curious like what awful demonic pets are we discussing here you use the word pet, so is it someone's pet or the shape of pet? I know. Well, I, I just use the word pet because he's mainly talking about dogs and cats. Okay, so okay. It, so that, that was my interpretation. It's not people's personal pets, but <laughs> domestic, you know, the animals that we know as domestic. Sure. Um, smaller, in, smaller in, in size. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And then he also talks about, like, bats and snakes and, and creepy birds and, like, things that um, exist today that we accept as part of our animal kingdom, but the way that they survive in such a strange, you know, like like vampire bats, they live off of the blood of like livestock. They will and they'll they'll feed on blood and that's how they survive. And it's like, is it part of our animal kingdom or is it something that slipped through a vortex at some point and we've just come to accept them as like Ooh, part of our earthly beings, you know? I like so that. yeah, it's kind of hiding among yeah. us. <laughs> Exactly. So the first thing John talks about is that uh, these like demon dogs, these phantom cats, these 
mm, domestic monsters that uh, a- appear in history have uh, seemingly been recorded alongside violent thunderstorms, which this this kind of made me think of your your time storms wow. thing. And ha- like I was remembering that that person's little dog that got stuck in in the time storm. Right. And like confused when, I remember when it that came out too. and sweaty. And, yeah. Yeah. And I guess we'll we'll go into the first piece of folklore here. So this this happened in 16th century Germany. A man named Peter Stubb. If you know him, you're no, you're going to know exactly what I'm getting toward here. But he's a odd little fellow and kind of a <laughs> grotesque man. Um, he basically <laughs> claims that the the devil gave him a, a belt made out of wolf skin, and he whenever he puts the belt on, he can transform into a werewolf. And uh, he what? at night he would terrorize his village. He would kill exclusively women and then livestock. Um, and uh, this is so gross to think about, but he also um, gave birth to a son through his own daughter. So, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. He later killed that son and ate him. And, you know, the, the town after a while, they were just like fed up with this man. After a while? <laughs> how many people does he have to terrorize? After the 10th woman, after the whole yeah. daughter shenanigans, like they were just like, Real all right, stuff, right, I think it's time to talk about stubs. Maybe pitchforks weren't invented yet. And uh, so they they had to wait to invent pitchforks. They came to his house with actual forks and he (laughs) he wasn't threatened. Like, we're gonna eat you too. They're like, Where's the baby? We want we want seconds. Wait, but so so are there reports of him turning into a werewolf? He was just a crazy man with a belt. Yes. So um when the town finally went searching for this wolf uh to kill it, they said that they finally found the wolf and they they pushed it into a corner and they were about to kill it, but right before their eyes it transformed into Peter. And he was taken in for wow. questioning. And during his interrogation, um they they tortured him, they pulled out his fingernails, they broke his bones. And then uh, at the end of the day, they ended up mounting his head on a pole after his trial because they wanted to use it to warn away any other werewolves or people who tried to wear the wolfskin belt from the devil. Um, by the way, the wolfskin belt was never recovered. They never found it. So. And, and it was German, this story, right? Ger- yep. 16th century Germany. Wow. Peter Stubb. Stub with two Bs. <laughs> I've been I've been looking into a lot of documentaries about serial killers. I mean, he, it, clearly he was a serial killer, but... Yeah, but the, but with the weird supernatural edge to this story, mm-hmm. you know? yeah, and the fact that so many townspeople say that they witnessed the they like they caught the wolf and then it turned back into a man. It was like, oh well, you know. Having having was- watched a documentary recently about Ted Bundy and about mm-hmm. um, I forget who else, but these are people who have mentioned that they thought they were possessed by demons, and I don't know if that's a cop out of their own sickness and and whatever but i do think that's interesting like you know you know is there an influence there when somebody gets so far from being human um that they begin to take life without mercy um you know right. or or is there right a and, it, and is it really in the hands of someone else or are they the demon this so-called demon you know sure are there super beings in in another dimension that are feeding off this energy the energy itself the suffering the pain the horror it's interesting to think of behavior and action 
and the way that you treat others as energy, right? Like if you could transform that into different kinds of energy, different flavors of energy, and you look at mm. the energy of violence as being perhaps a flavor that dark beings enjoy, you know, perhaps they feed on yeah. energy more than food itself. You know, we don't, we don't know. We don't hear too many stories about like banquets that demons eat. You know what I mean? Like, but so like Demon banquets. and aliens themselves, we don't, we don't, we suspect that maybe they don't eat either, but for different reasons, maybe, maybe not. Right. Um, so, so in terms of the energy, involved here you know are they using this being or was peter just like like a psychopath and a cannibal cannibal for sure i mean he was definitely a devil worshiper if he was if he claimed that the devil gave him this belt and he was like yeah sure great let me put it on and eat eat my babies okay so we're starting out pretty strong here <laughs> yep starting out strong and, and now now we're gonna person. I want to take a step back because uh, uh, the next story is about uh, a pet cat um, this happened in Pinesville West Virginia a stray cat was found in a tree with um, what was defined as nine inch boneless wings on its back oh wow a flying feline if you will um, the cat was a Persian cat long-haired cat with like the flat face no way um, but they said it was unusually large in size with overly sized feet which is kind of an interesting um, fact and uh, it couldn't actually fly they were like um, they were just like <laughs> dead appendages on top of its back but it but it could it could kind of like flap them and control them so it was kind of like a flightless bird uh, in a way um, the man who found it he named the cat Thomas and uh, it, it got a, a whole lot of, of good reports and things. People were coming to the town and paying dimes and nickels to see this cat, this uh, strange anomaly. And uh, he actually took it to uh, New York City and was on NBC, like on their radio show one what? day, like talking about this crazy cat. And it was boosting tourism in their town. And after it started attracting a lot of publicity, um, this old widow from the town, she actually uh, spoke up and said that the cat was hers and that she had lost it. And so this, the new owner, the guy who found the cat, he was like, well, I'm not giving it back to you. Like, this cat has brought me infamy, you know? And uh, so he, they end up going to court. And uh, the day that the cat is supposed to come in as, like, the, the subject matter, uh, it turns out that the cat, like, shed its wings. And he, like, brings in a box with just the, the nine-inch nasty boneless wings in it. And he's like... The cat shed its wings today, and the and the widow decided, well, I don't want it anymore. <laughs> what the hell? That's crazy. <laughs> Isn't that a great little a great little story there? It's weird. Yeah, <sighs> it's crazy and weird, and ugh, those little wings, you know, <laughs> those little boneless wings. Yeah, if my cat had little wings. She wouldn't be able to fly either. I know. I was thinking about it, and honestly. Okay, so we're thinking about it's a Persian cat. It's long-haired. My mind immediately, when you think of like wings on a back, is immediately goes to this cat wasn't being cared for properly, and it was developing matted fur on its back, and it probably just like was coming off of the back, and it sure. was chipped off, and so it it resembled wings. That's what I'm kind of thinking of or in the back a mutation. of my head. Mutation. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, yeah. They said that they there were no bones in it, so maybe it was fleshy, or maybe it was just a lot of matted fur, and they couldn't really tell. And that's why eventually they just came off because all of a sudden the cat was being cared for and fed properly and eating fresh fish every day because it was famous and rich. <laughs> yeah, it's 
journey. All right. So here's another story about what uh, what John Keel defines as phantom cats. Um, again, this this happened in early uh, 1600s in Hungary, which is close to Germany, but different country. And I'm just going to directly quote this one from the book because I loved the verbiage that uh, that he recorded it from. And I don't know if it's like um, like a newspaper clipping from that time or something, but I just, I like the way it's worded. So I'm just going sure. to read it directly here. So one of the most fascinating of these tales of phantom cats involves a lady who practiced vampirism in her spare time. Her name was Countess Elizabeth Bathory. She lived in a charming old castle in Chetha, Hungary, in the early 1600s. Life was dull, so the countess developed a quiet little hobby. She would invite local peasant girls to the castle and entertain herself by stringing them up in the dining room, slicing open their arteries, and drinking their blood. After a few years of this, the local townspeople became rather annoyed and grumbled to the authorities. (laughs) On New Year's Eve, 1610, a group of soldiers and policemen led by the local governor assaulted the castle and caught the countess and a few of her friends in the act of celebrating the new year by lapping up the blood of a very unhappy young girl. (laughs) Yikes. Upset by the (laughs) intrusion. I just, I love it. She was a very unhappy little girl. I mean, I would be too if my blood was being sucked out of my arteries. Hello? Upset by the intrusion, the countess supposedly uttered an extravagant curse, calling upon 99 cats to come to her rescue. Shortly afterward, by a most curious coincidence, the local priest who accompanied the raiders was climbing a staircase in the castle when six cats suddenly pounced upon him, badly scratching and biting him. The soldiers chased the animals around. They seemed to multiply and then vanish into thin air. The countess became the subject of a sensational trial, and because she was of royal lineage, she was condemned to a life in solitary confinement. There are extensive records of this incredible affair where you can find them carefully documented in William Seabrook's book, Witchcraft. Wow. It's like almost like a Dracula like story. I know. Yeah. You know, with very much so. With, uh, with some cat bodyguards that were materializing <laughs> and disappearing. I mean, yeah. I think the moral of the story is these crazy serial killers got away for years until someone got pissed and did something. But <laughs> but it shows you that like their power, maybe it's the power and influence of this woman was the reason they couldn't really like do anything about it initially. Right. You know, finally yeah, it's true. just become such a problem that they come in there. But um, yeah, I mean, that's all very angry mob. This is like a Halloween special, not on Halloween. Like this is you're right, pretty you're right. dark. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very definitely dark. not a Christmas special. A whole there lot no of four calling birds. No, <laughs> it's a whole lot of um, blood in these stories. And, but maybe that's sort of blood. something that, um, attracts the dark elements of the supernatural human blood. And it's, I think it is something that, that I have seen before that, that something, there's something about human blood. Maybe it's nutrients. Maybe the sacrifice itself calls upon the strength or the, you know, um, the influence of, of dark beings you know, she sounds she sounds like she was in control, but we don't know. I what I what I like about Keel is that he he does his homework and he shares with you stories that were 
documented from the past. And and it's easy to say like, well, who, who can believe this? There are no photographs and video. But yeah, again, <laughs> again, it's documented. It's worth taking a look at. It's worth taking it into account. But I like I like that he brings up these old stories. I mean, that's like, uh, that's cool. You know, I bet there are other mm-hmm. books about this. I wonder. I wonder. What, what was yeah. what was the countess's name? Does she have a name? Elizabeth Bathory. Wow, Elizabeth Bathory. Accused of torturing and killing hundreds of girls. Holy crap. So maybe, uh, you know, I'm reading about serial killers whose body count was like in the 30s. Like very <laughs> horrific. Um, just yeah. completely unfathomable, to be honest with you. But this, what if like the, you know, the worst serial killers in history were just beyond that? Were yeah. Well, and I, I love it. I mean, that's why I wanted to directly quote it because I, I think my favorite line is, after a few years of her doing this, the local townspeople became rather annoyed and grumbled to the authorities. <laughs> I just think that's so funny. Like, oh, I'm so annoyed. They've killed my 10th daughter already. <laughs> like, why, why does this keep happening? What are we going to do about it? I want to, like, be in the Elizabeth Bathory video game, but not the first part, not the introductory part, <laughs> but I want to be, like, the dude who goes in there and, like, slays this this crazy witch. Like, this is crazy. And her phantom cats. Drinking, yeah. bathing in the blood of virgin. I mean, you cannot make this up. I mean, you can make this up, but this is, like, way more, <laughs> this is way more gruesome than things that people make up. This is a fascinating story. Thank you. I mean, again, it's it's stuff that's worth looking into. I mean, I've never heard of her. Anybody else who hasn't heard of her that's listening, this is like a Wikipedia article you might want to read for sure. You know, <laughs> it's a and then maybe go further see if there's any good, yep, good fil- films or books about her. But also yeah. gross, and it makes it makes me sick. Indeed. All right, moving forward. So now we're gonna we're gonna head to a different route. We're gonna talk about the hairy ones. Which David, Finally. what did know? What did it make you think of? Uh, crit- you said it earlier. Critters and primarily Yeti testicles. Yep, Yeti testicles. As he drinks out of a Yeti container. Oh my gosh. Synchronicity. A synchronicity. Come catch your synchronicity. <laughs> wow, that's cool. That was cool. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> we just we just had a synchronicity on the show where I was talking about Yeti testicles <laughs> and I'm drinking out of a Yeti glass. And then he picked up his Yeti container. Yeah. Um, David, which term do you prefer? Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Abominable Snowman, or Yeti? Um, or do they mean different things to you? I guess Bigfoot is the more socially known term. I don't like... Maybe Sasquatch sounds more serious. I, for me, it's like just Bigfoot's kind of silly, right? It's kind of silly sounding. Like Harry and the Hendersons. Sasquatch and Yeti sound more like we're considering this, like a creature Monsters, that might right? have, yeah. like, that might be out there that may or may not be made of uh, material cells, you know, or it might have the property to to shape shift, to, to come out of the dimensions. It might have portals. It might have. You know, it might be a a servant of other beings. It, you know, there's a lot yeah. of things about it. But I guess, I guess, Sas- I wouldn't say Sasquatch. That sounds too much like squash or, you know, whatever. <laughs> it just makes me think but of like a, a being made Sasquatch. of a, a being made of squash, you know, which is just no. like squash, spaghetti squash, uh, you know, y- <laughs> yetis. I don't know. You know, I guess, I guess Bigfoot is just the easiest, easiest way to explain them. 
John Keel actually he liked the term abominable snowman and he okay. uh, for short term he put it at ABSM. So every time he would refer to this hairy one, he would call it the ABSM, abominable snowman. But those are those are creatures that live in the snow, right? Like the yeti? Um they're actually not. Uh thank you for asking though. Um yeah, when you think of snowman, you think of like you're picturing Bigfoot, but he's all white and he like lives up in the tundras, right? The term actually derived from the people in the Himalayan mountains, which are often covered in snow. Um, but the way they would describe their creature, the abominable snowman, and that was their like rough translation to English was the same as they would describe Bigfoot in America. And uh Sasquatch is actually the Canadian term for Bigfoot, so Fun fact. Oh, uh, but it's always a, a brown or black hairy man, humanoid kind of thing with uh, bare, hand, bare palms, bare feet, and a bare face. And I don't mean bear like raw bear. I mean B-A-R-E bear. <laughs> I was picturing a bear. <laughs> I, that just, You're like bear hands. You just tripped me out. With jazz hands. No, you know, I was, <laughs> yeah, basically flesh, yes. right? Flesh that you can yes, see. Yes, fl- yes. Exactly. No, no hair on the face, palms, and feet. Um, but they describe them the same. They describe their abominable snowman the same as you would describe a Yeti, a, a Bigfoot, or a Sasquatch. So I think that's a common misconception. Um, John Keel references uh, that Native Americans would, uh, they, they pass down stories through their lineage of what they would call crazy bears, um, saying that they were being shot down from the moon, um, which could be referencing a Bigfoot kind of creature that might might may or may not be coming out of like a portal in earth or some kind of ufo um but there are many 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 reportings and correlations of ufo sightings and heavy ufo activity where the abominable snowman reportings also happen is this just coincidence or is there some kind of connection right yeah i mean look the earth the earth is a place where physical as far as we know, physical things can exist, right? So we can exist mm-hmm. here. A lot of physical creatures can exist here. You know, what if it's not just a safe place for us to live, but other beings too? I mean, there's a possibility that, like, what if they could be, like, refugees from some other planet or some other reality, you know, that are trying to just live their lives in peace or somehow in the forests. I don't totally. know. I don't know. Like they might just yeah, be borrowing. Yeah, and like they're terrified of humans. I mean, I, I would be terrified of humans if I weren't one. There's too <laughs> many of us. So, so, but he's, it's not just in the snow. It's just his, his term is abom- abominable snowman. The reason that doesn't work yeah. is because you got to say that word. So. Right, abominable. <laughs> that we, you can stick to ABS. It's kind of it's kind of rude too. I can see the I can see the the abominable snowman being like, okay, first let's talk about abominable. Where are you getting this? Why are you getting this? Can we can we work this out? <laughs> we need a rebranding. Yeah, that's the. I prefer Yeti. That's the voice of the psychologist Yeti, who who just has like more of a developed vernacular. Um, so one of the first sightings uh, recorded um, about this abominable snowman was in 1923 um, during a Mount Everest expedition. Um, it was headed by a man named General Bruce, uh, and they were tracking these humanoid footprints. Um, and they were following these tracks, and they saw a hairy naked man running about a thousand feet below them on the 
cliffs of the mountain. And at the same time, someone from uh, General Bruce's group pointed up to the sky and he, uh, they, everyone looked up and they saw that there were two floating objects overhead that vanished up into the clouds at the same time that the creature down below vanished into the rocks. Uh, so several sightings were being reported of the same creature on Mount Everest, but the... Um, as John Keel refers to them, the type B scientists were declaring these sightings as hallucinations uh, due to the high altitude that people were in when they were climbing Mount Everest. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've never hallucinated a being. Like, I haven't even right. I haven't even effectively taken hallucinogenics and achieved that. Like, <laughs> I haven't. But but also, ha- when was the last time you climbed a mountain? <laughs> Maybe you would. Apparently, I wasn't getting high right in my youth. Yeah. (laughs) Literally. By getting high, we mean literally. John Keel, actually, he decides to go on his own expedition to to talk to the Himalayan people and try to discover this abominable snowman on his own. Um, And during his time there with with the people of the Himalayas, he... He learned that the Yeti is as common to the Himalayan people as deer are to us in the U.S., okay? So, like, they, they're they like, oh, yeah, that's the Yeti. Like, no big deal. They're not terrified of him. They know that he's there. They know that many of them are there. It's not just one, obviously. You're not just going to, like, see one, and that's why the sightings are so rare. These sightings were plentiful, so plentiful that it was like, why would we report this? Would you report if you saw a deer on the side of the highway? No. Good point. <laughs> Good point. No. So Kent goes on this own his own expedition. He his goal is to find the abominable snowman in his lair. He wants to find like where they live, how they Wait, procreate, Keel, what they're Keel doing. Keel or who? Uh, Keel. Did I say Kent? I think I meant. I Kent. was I like, who Kent. is this Kent Keel. researcher? No, I don't know. John. His for some reason, like when I see his name, John Keel, it like looks like John Kent in my. That's mind. cool, like, but <laughs> no, I don't. I like the word Keel. John Kent. I mean, sounds like a sounds like a good <laughs> like if you're writing a fictionalized version of Keel. So for this book, he was doing this? I don't know if it's for the book. Um, This is just a portion of it. He might have written his own full book about this because he talks about the Mothman in this book as well. But it's like obvious. Obviously, he wrote an entire book about it in addition. So very likely um, that whatever he recorded either didn't surmount enough to write its own book. And so therefore, he just kind of categorized it into this book or um, it's in addition to its own Book. We'll find out because um, we will cover yeah. Jadu and we'll find out. Okay, so so for this book, is this a big chapter, this part, or is this kind of um yeah, I'm I'm just gonna kind of brush brush over his experience. Okay. Uh, he was there for several weeks, cool. um, and there was like several days that he would hear strange animal calls uh that he was not familiar with, and that like the local people would be like, Oh yeah, that's that's him. That's the abominable snowman. And so he, he, yeah, you're going to try to do the call there. <laughs> okay. That's actually not bad, but he does describe what the calls sound like. He said they sound like bird call sounds with short chirps and a warble that are similar to a monkey, but higher pitched. You want to try that again? <laughs> no, I don't. Wait, wait, <laughs> say that again. Bird call sounds. Like short chirps and warbles that are similar to a monkey, but higher pitched. <laughs> similar to a monkey. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. No. Well, that was cool. That was good. I think our whole <laughs> show you. should just be us making animal noises and like channeling. <laughs> Yeti call. 
<laughs> Yeti call. That's going to be our side project, just making noises. <laughs> he also said that he heard um, screams from the creature, and it sounded like a locomotive <laughs> screaming. Um, and then he would hear the the creatures killing other animals. Like, he could decipher the screams of, like, a panther that it was killing to bring back home and stuff like that. So he, he followed those sounds until he found blood, so evidence of, of the panther or some kind of creature being killed. He he said it was a panther. He seems to know his his animal sounds. So sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> um. So he finds tracks and and he finds more tracks and he follows them and he he starts to notice like these tracks are so well defined. They're almost like too easy to follow. And he was kind of getting skeptical about it. it. Was like you know um nowadays we have those stupid like Bigfoot feet that you can put on and like make your own tracks in the woods to confuse people. Um, not that that existed in the seventies necessarily, but you know he he's he's an open minded skeptic, right? So the back of his mind he's saying like why is this this is almost too easy to track this thing. Like, I can see every single footstep that it's making. <laughs> he realized that the abominable snowman was always taking the easiest route along the rocks and, like, really avoided any jungle areas that would be hard to track. Um, so he followed these tracks through several towns and villages of people who were claiming, like, yeah, we just saw him walk by. He just walked by. You just missed him. They they were describing him as, um, like, nine or ten feet tall, brown hair all over the body. Again, like a hairless, uh, red-tinted face and a sloped head that came to a point in the back, which I think is pretty... I mean, like when you picture your Bigfoot, that's that's kind of what you picture. Harry and the Hendersons kind of thing. They always have that like cone head. What color was shape, his hair? Right, brown, and, just like brown. And he was alone. But he had or a, yeah, just just one of them. Mm. Um, at the time that Keel was tracking him anyway. Uh, so Keel hits this village called Latchen, uh, where these natives were super excited. And they're like, oh, we saw him. We saw him. They're like, come come follow us. And so he finds more more tracks. And then he hears this screech coming from the rocks up above him. And again, it's like that locomotive sound. <laughs> so uh, Keel follows these rocks up a jagged path, and it mer- emerges into this large cavity of open water. And he looks up and he sees exactly what the natives were describing directly across the water from him and their eyes lock for a moment. <laughs> he comes face to face with this abominable snowman that he's been trying to track for weeks. Um, he was big and brown and moved so swiftly, like unhuman, like just the way that he could just swiftly move through these icy waters. And, uh, all of a sudden, he saw it meet up with another brown blur across the water, and they both disappeared into the rocks and climbed up the cliffs. And the last thing that Keel heard was another locomotive scream, and he interpreted that as a warning, a, like a warning cry to not come closer. Like, we know you're following us. Stop following us. Don't come any closer. So right? so the locomotive scream was was their sound? Was that what they it's, sounded Yeah, it's, like? it's one of their sounds. Wow. Yeah. Like a... Like a warning cry, like the like, okay. yeah. What a brave guy to chase these creatures into the mountains, you know? I know, right? I mean, he was super determined. Like you said, he was a dedicated researcher. Like if this is why he came to Tibet, he's going to try to freaking get some stuff he can write down. He was a fearless guy in a lot of ways, you know? He, he really... You know, let's face it. I mean, most of us would not do this kind of stuff. Like we wouldn't we wouldn't we wouldn't go searching for UFOs, chronicling stories. At some point we would get freaked out maybe, right? I don't know. I'm not speaking for everybody and myself even necessarily, but I do think that a lot of people would would draw the line somewhere and probably not go through all of this. But he he very much 
was in search of the truth behind this. So yeah. um, that's why he was exposed to the 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 high strangeness of it. So so that's very cool. So he finds these creatures and it's too bad he doesn't get to hang out with them and learn learn their ways. <laughs> yeah. I think he took the warning cry as like a I need to back off. But that probably is is uh where they're where they lived, where they resided because that was like their final straw of like this is my home now. He met up with another another ABSM, if you will. Um so yeah, that might have been kind of where they were residing at the time, and he 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 felt threatened that this man was coming to their hideaway, their spot. Yeah, they're protecting their themselves. Abode. You know, you know what right do we have to to invade a being's like home and study them and dissect them and like what right do we yeah. have? So, I have I have another another uh, Sasquatch story now. Yes. Um, this this is one that I read and like <laughs> I kind of feel bad because just the way that it's written, um, it, it's a it's a letter that someone wrote to like the newspaper in Cats, British Columbia, on April twenty third in nineteen fifty seven, and they signed their name Mary Jo. The language is very crude, almost like illiterate to read, um, and so I'm just gonna read exactly what the letter says, and it just it it, it feels like it. It comes with this automatic kind of like a southern backwoods kind of accent because <laughs> that's just the way that it's written. So I'm going to read it with this accent and I'm, I'm apologizing ahead of time. <laughs> but I thought it was so funny and I was like, I need to read this because David's going to love it. And I, I love reading it. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Um, so the letter was mailed to the village clerk at Harrison Hot Springs in the heart of Sasquatch country, British Columbia. She says, Mary Jo, in part, 15 years ago, my old daddy was hurt bad by a Sasquatch man he met a mile from cats. One thing, my daddy was good Catholic, and he very little drink liquor. What happens, he say, was daddy was with mama picking berries when he went away from others for rest. He say he only look at trees and sky. Then big man over six foot comes running from rocks at him, hit old daddy to ground, hit him on head and sidearm, hit him hard and make grunts. Daddy yell, then others come and Sasquatch run away real fast. They see Sasquatch running and daddy blood on his head. Grandma say Sasquatch big nice man is catch little Indian woman for make love all they want. Old daddy scared of woods after never go anywhere. Just stay home. <laughs> what what a what a jerk. He like hits this dude over the head and just runs away. <laughs> like what are you doing, bro? I love that grandma's like, oh yeah, Sasquatch is a big nice man. He's a catch. Any 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 little woman that would go with Sasquatch. They could just make all the love they want. <laughs> what a weird thing to add. That's incredible. Uh, maybe grandma has her own stories. Maybe they, some, right? some steamy Ooh. encounters in her youth. Hopefully in her youth. Oh, um, maybe that's why Sasquatch beat up uh, the, the, the dad. Because it was actually his long lost brother. Because grandma had an affair and had a Sasquatch yeah. baby and a regular baby. But she couldn't keep the Sasquatch baby. So she left him in the woods. And he was coming to get revenge on his twin brother. Exactly. See, wow. we, we know the truth. See, 
So, so I would love to hear more stories from these people. Are there any other letters? <laughs> this is incredible. Um, I mean, th- there were several letters, okay. but that that was the one that that really stuck out to me. And then, and then from here, John kind of like talks about what we collectively know as creatures from the Black Lagoon, and he he well he calls these ASS, which is kind of funny, like. Uh, a dot s dot s dot and that's short for abominable swamp slob slob <laughs> swamp slob slob yeah and he says that they're they're very very similar like the reportings of uh these swamp creatures are very similar to the abominable snowman in terms of stature and like the hairiness and like where they're located it just happens that the only difference is that they are found near a body of water or they're coming out of water so they're kind of like dripping wet like maybe a sasquatch that's dripping wet and people are interpreting it as a different creature again uh, we and we know from past uh, episodes that we've done that there's a lot of ufo activity near swamps and bodies of water so Again, that correlation, what does it mean? Is it coincidence? Is there a connection? So the whole next section of the book, not the whole next section, but the next section, which is a large section, is about UFOs, um, extraterrestrials, things from outer space. Um, the first story here is about these shiny metal robots. Um, this happened in 1963 on October 18th near Mexico City. Um, a badly frightened truck driver named Eugenio Douglas was surrounded by a light that came from a 25-foot disc parked in the middle of the highway. He leapt out of his vehicle, the truck drove into a ditch, and he saw what he describes as three shiny metal robots that were 15 to 20 feet tall, and they approached him. So he pulls out his revolver to try to scare him off he fires four shots in the air and then runs back toward town Um, and he said that the creatures got back into their saucer flew over him several times like threatening to kind of run over him with their disc and uh every time that they that the the saucer got very close to him while he was running by the way he's on foot right he's not in a car anymore um he was completely exposed um and he said that every time the saucer got close to him he would feel this wave of like terrible suffocating heat um and the police examiner when he got back into the town found out that douglas had suffered these really severe unusual burns like several of them all over his body unlike anything he'd ever seen before so wow kind of interesting new little when, when was this? The fifties, you said, or nineteen sixty-three. So it's interesting that a lot of the science fiction films of the fifties and sixties, like they were metal robots, right? The day the Earth yeah, stood still, yeah. um, which is weird. There's Twilight Zone episodes like that. Um, you know, if we're if we're drawing, if if it's a being that draws its inspiration for its physical form from our own minds. You know, I wonder, I wonder if that has something to do with it or are they literally, cause like would, would AI really go back in time or like, and, and <laughs> like just, they would be like these little beings and they would jump out of a disc. Like, why would they do that? <laughs> you know, right, why would they, right. why would they chase someone around? You know, I don't know, but that's interesting. That's cool. That's Mexico city. Hey, that's cool. There's also stories of a cyclops that came from outer space. So I feel like this is a creature that we haven't heard about yeah, before. Yeah, never. This one happened in Brazil, same year, but in August um, of 1963. A one-eyed giant with a vivid red complexion, no ears, no nose, and a strange mouth reportedly descended into someone's garden and approached three boys. One of the boys grabbed a brick and started to fling it, but the in- but the entity shot an orange beam at him from a square lamp on his chest and paralyzed the boy's arm. 
Fortunately, the boys emerged unscathed from this encounter. They were later closely interrogated by investigators who said that they found no reason to believe that the boys were lying. Wow, that's like that's like totally out of like a 50s or 60s sci-fi film. <laughs> right? Yeah, like a claymation cyclops with his orange like orb yeah. chest. Like, um, and John Keel talks a lot about these like giant men, like men that existed uh, in tribes, like remote tribes where they're where like just evolutionarily like people got really big, but um, other groups of people would be really intimidated by them and they would try to like kill them off. And so the reason that like humans are pretty average in stature nowadays is because they like killed off a lot of those tribes and um just out of fear and and power again and that kind of thing. wow so, napoleon um, complex in a way <laughs> yeah before, totally. before napoleon there was just the little the little man complex against the the giants totally yeah and i'm sure there's yeah. some scientific support for that there's some evidence to suggest that there were right they have found skeletons that were either pretty large or pretty small mm-hmm yeah, but nothing like crazy. Like when I picture a giant, I picture like a hundred foot tall man who's like proportionate and large, you know. But it's like everything that John Cale was talking about was like, oh, it was a it was a seven foot man. It was an eight foot man, and it's like, uh, okay. Wow, an eight <laughs> not eight foot man. Can you imagine? I mean, but we have. I mean, we don't have very many, granted, and they don't live very long, which also might be why they. Uh, would have died out if they were a separate race um, much sooner than the humans we know today. But we have people that are seven, eight feet tall now. Like, it's pretty rare, but it does happen. Sure. It's just, yeah, it's not like a complete bizarre anomaly. Sure. Um, and then the the last little bit I want to talk about here is invisible saucers, which I think is kind of, we've kind of covered it before, just the fact that like the maybe these saucers if if people are seeing UFOs and they're not supposed to be, like they're supposed to be invisible, but maybe something in their technology failed, and so that's why humans are allowed to see them, that kind of thing. But apparently, like several accounts of people witnessing UFOs have later been told by the con- like people who've been contacted by the the creatures flying the UFOs are told that they're supposed to be invisible to us. So it's like are the people who are seeing them maybe have like a sixth sense that they're like open to that part of their brain that can see the invisible saucers mm-hmm. or like I said like the technology is failing and then we were able to see them. Um so this is just a little kind of story about uh, a man who sees a, a an egg-shaped Saucer, which we have talked about in the past, but this is a story I don't think we've ever covered, Which I, and it comes as a fun scene. This happened on April 24th, 1964, outside of Newark Valley, New York. Gary Wilcox was alone on a 300-acre farm spreading fertilizer when he saw a flash of light like a mural reflection and discovered an egg-shaped object hovering a few feet off the ground nearby. He said the object was 20 feet long and 12 to 15 feet wide with rounded ends. So it looked like a big egg. He walked over to it and touched it. He said it was just like touching an automobile. And he even said there was a sound of a motor idling. So it wasn't a completely silent um, craft like we've uh, discovered in other stories. Um, Suddenly, two small figures dropped to the ground from the underside of the object. Although, Although they were human in shape, 
They were only about four feet tall, and both were encased in silvery one-piece suits. Their heads and faces were also covered by the same opaque material, and they were holding trays. Don't be afraid. He spoke in a deep voice that seemed to come from his chest rather than his head. We have talked to people before. What? What are you? Can he see us? Yes. Apologies, kind sir. Usually we are invisible at distances beyond 100. See, this is why we should never do work at night. Look, our craft is glowing. It's betraying our position. What? Why are you here? We are here to collect soil samples from your land. For what? Never mind that. We'll be finished shortly and gone before you know it. You can return to your duties. You know your people are going to die after their exposure to space? What? Meanwhile, the other creature begins taking small soil samples. John Glenn, Virgil Grissom, Yuri Gargarin, and Vladimir Komarov. They're all going to die within a year or two. I... uh, Are you serious? Never mind him. Thank you for your time. It's in your best interest that you do not talk about this incident. And they get back into the egg-shaped craft before Wilcox can ask any more questions. <laughs> uh, he, he then describes the, the craft as gliding upward a short distance and vanishing up in the air. And, but it left behind this kind of reddish jelly-like substance that remained on the ground. And mm. um, Wilcox said he was like, he tried to grab it to like to get a better look at it, but he couldn't get a hold of it with his hands. It like... It would just kept slipping out of his hand, so he couldn't get a good grip on it. Weird. Um, and then he said it melted away into the ground. Slipping uh, back into another dimension. You know, right. Keel doesn't really believe that they're from another planet, so where are they going exactly? Or or are these things just roaming around at all times unseen, <laughs> right, On in different, in different ways, and, and it's just kind of going back to that reality. Yeah. Weird, weird that they... Like they must, they, they they can communicate with us in our language, mm-hmm. right? Usually it's telepathic. Yeah, some kind of telepathic. Or he didn't say anything about whether they actually spoke or not, but it it does seem like they spoke to him. Don't they mention the astronauts' names to him? Yes. So uh, the the second little creature claims that these four guys who uh, two of them are Russian astronauts and then um, two of them are American astronauts. And uh, he claims that they're all going to die within a year or two from their exposure um, from outer space. Which wasn't Um, true. This prophecy, it wasn't very precise, but (laughs) not at all. Fun facts about this. John Glenn had slipped in his bathtub just like a couple months before this uh, event occurred, and he damaged his inner ear um, from a concussion that affected his sense of balance for several months. And uh, they like the help that he got was really great, and he recovered. But if he hadn't gotten the specialist help that he needed, he probably would have died from the concussion. Wow. Um, and then coincidentally, Yuri Gargarin, uh, this is Russia's first man, who went into space, he suffered an I- almost identical concussion incident around the same time, which is kind of freaky. Like, they're almost trying to kill him instead of him just dying from outer space exposure. <laughs> yeah, they're like, um, we must fulfill the prophecy. <laughs> and then in January of 1967, 
Uh, Virgil Grissom was among three astronauts who died in a fire aboard the Apollo. Um, so that's not really dying from outer space exposure, but he did die three years afterward. Okay. Four months after that, actually coincidentally on the same exact date as uh, Gary Wilcox's sighting, April 24th, but 1967, so three years later, the Russian astronaut uh, Vladimir Kos- Kosmarov, he died when his uh, space space capsule crashed. So yeah, they and and then Yuri Gargarin, the guy who also had a concussion, he was killed a year later in a plane crash. So they did eventually die. I think John Glenn was the one who survived the longest. He didn't he passed away recently, like in the last 6 years or so. Yeah. Kind of weird. Not quite a true prophecy, but some weird coincidental Can be the case sometimes. Sometimes they, you know, they he died in Glenn died in 2016. So moving on, we're now I'm kind of going into the topic of like Skinwalker Ranch and and how there's all these weird like livestock killings and how animals are like completely being drained of their blood and the way they're being killed and they can't really figure out why and how and where that's coming from and like and people were experiencing bouts of like paralyzation where they're fully awake but they can't move and they hear people out in their fields but they can't do anything about it he covers Skinwalker Ranch in this book no, he doesn't cover Skinwalker Ranch. That's just my – I'm bringing that – because I think that happened with It more, reminds but, you of yeah, Skinwalker Ranch? Oh, okay. Yeah. But just this obsession with blood, these, like, blood freaks. Like, what's up with the blood thing? And he tells one story. Um, this is, a, uh, this is again, and this is a direct quote. I'm just going to read it straight from the book. Yeah. I, I like the way it was written. Go ahead. Um, but in the wee hours of a rainy morning early in March – 1967, a Red Cross bloodmobile laden with freshly collected human blood was driving along Highway 2 next to the Ohio River en route to the Red Red Cross headquarters in Huntington, West Virginia. The driver was Bo Schertzer, and he was accompanied by a young nurse. As they hit a completely deserted stretch of road, a large glowing object lifted from a nearby hill and swooped over the vehicle. Scherzer rolled down his side window and looked up. He was horrified to see that some kind of arm or extension was being lowered from the glistening machine up in the sky, cruising only a few feet above the bloodmobile. The nurse saw another arm reaching down on her side of the truck. It looked as if the flying object was trying to wrap a pincer-like device around the vehicle. Makes me think of the... um, (laughs) It was like a claw. Yeah, Yeah. the claw. (laughs) Claw machine trying to grab Mm -hmm. the car. Um, The nurse went into hysterics, understandably, and Scherzer opened the engine up wide, which I think means he just stepped on the gas, uh, trying desperately to outrun the thing. Apparently, they were saved by the sudden appearance of headlights from approaching traffic. As the other cars neared, the object retracted its arms and hastily flew off. To this day, Bo Scherzer refuses to drive on that highway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're not going to get me again. But yeah, like why come after a blood mobile specifically? Like, isn't that just so weird? Their their want for human blood. Like, I don't know. Is there like testing that they want to be doing or testing know. is a good theory. That's a good theory. I mean, hey, it either has nutrients or DNA or I don't know, you know. But there's something to it. There's something to it for sure. So I think this is a good time to take our little synchronicity break if you want to pull up. A story or two that you have to share. Uh, yeah. And we we had one on the show. Would you like to start? 
share your synchronicities? Well, I was talking about going on this road trip that I went on recently, and my brother was, uh, he would call me Ernest, and because he was like, he's like, you drive like an old man, and no offense to all the Ernests out there, but I was like, so I was like, all right, call me Ernesto. Ernesto was the name for me driving, because anything above like 60 miles an hour was way too fast for me. I like to keep it in like the 45 miles an hour, 35 to 45 range. Um, so he would call me Ernest. We we get to town and we go into Costco. Costco is like one of the first places we walk into. And there was a door greeter and who checks your cards and his his Uh-oh. his his name <laughs> his card name was, was <laughs> Ernesto. We're like, no yes! fucking way. I love that. That was one. That's a good one. Another one, a small one, was I was watching the documentary. I think it's called Catching Killers, kind of a like a really badass documentary about the cops and the investigators involved in catching certain serial killers. And it's a really good show, uh, more of an emphasis on the investigation than on the killers themselves. But one of the one of the episodes <laughs> was about the Green River Killer, and it was uh, the the guy's name is Gary Ridgeway, and that day, I look in my emails and I see an email from a girl named Ridgeway, and I'm like, "You, you, that's so weird." I'm like, "Dude, you know what's so, even weirder about this is that my synchronicity is also about a name, and you had two synchronicities about names." Yeah, two, two. Super it weird. was very direct, though. You know, you yeah. know a synchronicity because it's not like it happens. It doesn't happen. A long time after you're exposed to information, it happens quickly. And I think yeah. maybe with the effect that you recognize it, right? Mm-hmm. It wants, it's like signaling you, right? The synchronicity is like, hey, like I'm here. Like the universe <laughs> is, the universe is alive. Pay um, attention to me. <laughs> so what are yours? Tell me. I'm anxious yes, to know. So my, I have two. My first one is there is a character in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel called May. She's like the girlfriend of his of the main character's divorced husband, ex-husband. So I mentioned that character to Kyle. And uh, then I was, we were just talking about the show. And then I went through my email at the same time, right after I'd mentioned it. And I got an email from Disney Plus um, that was about the new movie Turning Red that was coming out. And apparently the main character's name in Turning Red is also May. And so the top of the title of the email said, it's gonna be May. And it was spelled the same and everything. And I was like, oh, that's so weird. A name so that's synchronicity. My, yeah, exactly. And the second the second synchronicity is I had a Facebook memory that I saw recently um, that said that it was reminding me that I went to see Hello, Dolly on Broadway four years ago. And I was like at work when I saw that. So when I got home, Kyle was in the kitchen doing dishes and he was playing the song Put On Your Sunday Clothes, which if you're a theater buff like myself, uh, that is from the show Hello, Dolly. And so I was like, that is so weird. Why are you playing this song? And he was like, what is it? He didn't even know what it was from. He was just playing like a Broadway, um, you know, playlist. <laughs> and then I was like, it's from Hello, Dolly. And I just got a memory that I went to see that show four years ago today. And he was like, oh, weird. Is it still on Broadway? <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that was that was my second synchronicity there. That's great. Light and light and sweet. Yeah. Yeah. They're not, they're not as trippy 
as <laughs> as other kinds that we've had, right. which are good. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I like those. I like the non-threatening mm-hmm. synchronicities. <laughs> yeah, we don't but, want a bunch of non-threatening ones, but I'll be sure to regale you of those when they happen as well. <laughs> yeah, there those are those are definitely to be recognized. All right, so very good. That concludes. All right, so we yes, thank you. For sharing your synchronicities. Um, we have two subjects left to cover. Uh, and that, that is conundrums of the sky and mysteries of the sea. So let's start with conundrums of the sky. Conundrums yes, of the sky. Good yes. title. A lot of this section was about Mothman. And I'll just touch on some things that we haven't already covered. But since we already did that episode, I want to talk about the other things. Um, so the, the biggest one that actually this one, like... I can't believe he didn't talk more about this, but maybe it's because there's just not enough information because it happened in 1856. But this one really creeped me out. So this was an article that he found in a London newspaper that occurred on February 9th, 1856. There were some men in the act of breaking stone with gunpowder. So they were like putting dynamite in to rock, right? To make a clearing. And then there was a cavity inside one of the clearings and... From inside the cavity, they saw a living being of monstrous form emerge, okay? They described this creature as having a very long neck, a mouth filled with a beak and a sharp teeth, and it stood on crooked talons, four legs that were joined together by a thin membrane wings, right? Um, Probably for flying purposes. They said it looked like a bat, but it was the size of a large goose, and its membranous wings were 10 feet across in span. Wow. What are you picturing here? What does this look like to you? Well, the long neck thing throws me off. I mean, it's... um, And the Mothman was never described as having a beak. I mean, I'm picturing, like, the most fucking absurd-looking ostrich (laughs) being that was just, like, Living all peacefully in this, spiritually living in the foundation of a building. I don't, I don't know what he was doing. What do you picture? What, what do you think this sounds like? I don't know. I'll tell you. So, um, upon reaching the light, uh, this monster gave some signs of life that it was alive, but it was like shaking its wings. But it very soon expired after uttering this hoarse cry. So it was like. And just dies, right? (laughs) So they bring the body to a paleontologist named Gray, and he described it as a livid black skin. That was the color of its skin, livid black. Um, Mm. It was naked, thick, and oily, and its intestines contained a colorless liquid, like clear water. He immediately recognized it as belonging to the genus Pterodactyl. What? (laughs) What? Yeah. So they went back to the site where this little creature that died immediately was found, and they um, discovered that it was found in this sedimentary rock that is so old that geologists usually date it back to more than a million years old. Um, and the cavity that the animal was lodged in like, has an exact hollow mold of its body, so they got a mold of it before no the actual way. physical yeah, creature died. Uh, deteriorated yeah so basically it's it's indicating that it was completely enveloped in this like sedimentary deposit that kept it alive you know like the whole idea of like um mastodons being kept alive in ice and when the ice thawed they would like roam the earth a little bit longer um so same idea but this happened in 1856 which uh we're talking like hundreds of millions of years old (laughs) Um, and it looked to be some kind of ancient dinosaur that somehow survived 
coincidentally, the location uh, that this happened in London is occurs in a place that the uh, Chinese people described as um, part of the historical dragon belt. So it's like the part of the whole like Eurasia land um, where dragons brooded and existed and, and, you know, like reproduced and stuff. This was a pretty small one. They said it was like the size of a large goose. So we're talking about, you know, not much bigger than. <laughs> wow. Is that possible? Yeah. You know, could, could it have been preserved in there somehow? And right. just like had literally its last breath. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. That's cool. Super weird, right? Yeah, that is super um, weird. Another possibility that this made me think of, because I was like, well, why did dinosaurs become extinct to begin with? And what we know is that, you know, that giant meteor struck Earth and it killed all the dinosaurs. But maybe it didn't affect the flying ones because maybe they could fly high enough to not be completely obliterated after the blow of the meteor. And somehow were able to land in the aftermath of what the Earth was after all (laughs) everything else had died. And they were able to survive for like thousands or you know in this case millions of years later um who knows and john keel even brings up that this might correlate with what native americans uh describe as the thunderbird the way that they that their like ancient writings have described it is that it's it's less of a bird like less of a feathered bird and more of a um like a kind of pterodactyl description that they're talking about the kind of like Mm -hmm. bat-like wings and giant talons and the long like teeth teeth filled beak so yeah dragons pterodactyls whatever it is who knows very very strange right strange and (laughs) strangely alluring right this idea Mm -hmm. that we could maybe we're just longing for a connection to our past to see to see things that we haven't seen um to see you know i think the dinosaurs are so interesting because it just represents like such a completely different reality on earth you know we're right. just where we're not dumb where we don't exist like you know um we're not but those writing. are monsters that we have like we have proof that they did exist even though they don't exist is it yeah. exist now they are if they were to exist now they would be what we would consider monsters living among us you know yeah i mean um just really really wild and and is there is there a way for history to get recorded in time like could you see you know phantom pterodactyls you know there are a lot of those (laughs) stories you know can can things be brought to life brought back to life like the jurassic park concept (laughs) should they right right right. should these things coexist you know or is that violating the law of evolution and everything Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So next, I'm I'm gonna just du- directly quote this because uh, I thought it was worth telling because it all happens like over New York, Brooklyn, and Coney Island. Um, but these are the spotted Birdman, right? So this is this makes me think of that Michael Keaton movie that I still don't think I understood what it was about. Um, but the man birds, right? So here we go. On September 18th, 1877, one W.H. Smith saw something unusual in the skies over Brooklyn, New York. It was something so odd that he felt compelled to sit down and write a letter to the New York Sun about it. It was, he reported, a winged human form. Three years later, a marvelous apparition appeared over Coney Island, right next to Brooklyn. Many reputable persons saw it, according to the New York Times, which was published on September 12, 1880, and they all agree that it was a man engaged in flying toward New Jersey. 
This thing was described as a man with bat's wings and improved frog's legs. It passed over Coney Island at an altitude of about 1,000 feet, making movements which closely resembled those of a frog in the act of swimming. But he's in the sky. A man's face was clearly seen attached to the monster, and it wore a cruel and determined expression. Various experimenters were toying with crude gliders at the same time, but not over water or populated areas. They considered a flight a great success if they managed to glide downhill for a few yards. So this is much further than that. Very strange. This man is a thousand feet up in the air, flying with frog legs toward New Jersey. Uh, Creepy. (laughs) Creepy frog legs. So the whole rest of the sky anomalies was about uh, West Virginia's Mothman, which we've covered in season one. If you haven't heard the episode, go ahead and take a listen back to it. It's a two-parter, and it's got some good, juicy stuff in there. But do you remember how in the Mothman episodes, uh, they contained a lot of information about the Men in Black, which we were kind of mentioning earlier? Yes. So this was a creepy little story that I read in this book that just felt I felt like I needed to tell it because I thought it was kind of creepy and in a way it's like even though they're human appearing men in black they could still be strange creatures from time and space right mm, <laughs> so for sure very appropriate for this yeah book. they don't seem um, human you know yeah so even though yeah even though they're the most human looking of all these other creatures we've talked right. about um so we're looking at 8 15 a.m on february 22nd 1967 we're in middleport ohio Connie Carpenter has just left her house. Um, She's headed to the school, and she sees a 1949 black Buick pull up alongside her. There's a man inside. He opens the door and beckons to her. Hey, miss, come here. I thought he was asking for directions, so I approached him. Can I help you? The man was young, maybe 25 years old. He was clean cut with neatly combed hair and a suntanned face married woman that I am, it was difficult not to be instantly captivated by him. You have no jacket on, and it's freezing. Let me find you a coat, sir. That's okay. Don't worry about me. Come here. I need to ask you something. Are you lost? Do you need directions? As I approached the vehicle, I noticed it looked brand new inside, even though it was considered a vintage model. It smelled brand new. Come here! He screamed, suddenly lunging at me and grabbing my arm. I fought back and broke away after a brief struggle. I ran back to the house and locked myself inside. You're going to regret that. Connie remained indoors after that for the following day. Um, When at three o'clock, she heard someone um, stepping around on her porch and there was a loud knock on the door. She went to it cautiously and found a note had been slipped under the door. It was written in pencil in all block letters on a piece of ordinary notebook paper that said, Be careful, girl. I can get you yet. (laughs) Oh, Mr. Creepy Man. And I think we cover Connie Carpenter. Her name sounded so familiar, yeah. So she went to the local police after that happened. They turned that note over to uh, the officer there, Raymond Manley, but neither the car or the young man was ever seen again, so... Yeah, what what's the what's the point? You know, like I mean, yeah. Yeah, clearly he was trying to capture her. Maybe imagine if she was just like just missing for the rest of her life after that. You know, um, <laughs> right? How many people have been stolen from this world? You know, how many people where you just don't get to hear their stories? You don't you don't know what happened to them. They they like probably feel like nobody would believe me if I if I did get back um, and. 
you know, and here we are debating if this stuff is even real. And some people find right. themselves on the other side of like some really, really twisted, too crazy to be even true story, you know? That's funny that you say that because that's like what John Keel talks about at the end of the book, um, that maybe there is something else going on that we're not aware of. Like people are always going missing. And this is back in the 1970s. He was saying that 100,000 people every year go missing in the U.S. So I looked up what the statistics are nowadays, and it's 600,000 people in the U.S. go missing every year. And, you know, like back in ancient times and like back when we had hieroglyphics and stuff when people went missing they would blame it on angels and demons and then you know more into like the folklore period and roman times and you know like in ireland ancient ireland and that kind of thing they would talk about how like fairies were kidnapping people and then of course you have like your vampires were killing people and and people always people have always been going missing but like whether we attribute it to how that's happening and who's taking them and what reason, like it's always changing and evolving. And I think by the time that John Keel was writing this book, people were very curious about uh, UFOs and extraterrestrials. And so now they're thinking like, oh, there's abductions happening. That's where all these people are going. And, you know, like nowadays, what are we thinking now? Where where do all the people who go missing, where are they going? Are they Are they still here? Are they going into another dimension? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends. There's a great researcher... David Politis, who does the missing 401 books that we got to cover at some point, which talks about the people who go missing in national parks. And mm-hmm. I think I, it's just like the UFO phenomenon. The fact of the matter is people go missing, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's attributed to things that we can assume, like maybe they're maybe they're runaways, maybe they got murdered, something horrible like that. But, you know, there are, there are a percentage of people that go missing that we don't know anything about. And like in national parks where it doesn't make sense and a lot of mysterious uh, reasons behind that. So that's so many people, though, 600,000. And I don't know if that is just because it said like missing person cases, but I don't know if that's new cases opened up or just how many are still left open per year. Um, Because I can't I don't know. I can't imagine 600,000 every year in addition to the ones that still haven't been closed from like the eighties, you know, <laughs> but I guess it makes sense that it's like the population has increased. So the number yeah. of, you know, people missing has increased. And I don't know from a supernatural standpoint, you know, do, or do we have to, is that the only way that we can live on this planet to give a percentage of our people over, you know, uh, David Politis and missing four and one, has talked about the amount of government pushback on investigating the people who go missing in public parks and how like their government seems to be aware of it, but doing nothing about it or claiming to do nothing about it. You know, they clearly don't want to bring attention to that. Um, so yeah, because maybe they're the ones sacrificing it. They're the ones who made the deal. (laughs) Maybe, or it's possible that they just don't have control over it. Just like in the case of UFOs. So they don't want to acknowledge it. Right. They're not going to acknowledge something because then they have to acknowledge that they can't do anything about it. So cool. This seems to be like a great book with a lot of different stories, you know, from totally from serial killers of the past, you know, with maybe supernatural elements to some Mothman stuff, UFO stuff, uh, AB, what was it? ABSM. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And don't forget the ASS. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and it, it, clearly he did expand the Mothman stuff into another book, you know, and and yeah. into all, into other novels, into other books. There were there was a, a couple facts that he when he was talking about the Mothman stuff in this book that I felt like uh, were worth bringing up, just in in the fact that potentially the Mothman could be some kind of robotic, technologically created thing and not actually a living, breathing creature. Um, He said that several reports said that people heard a humming machine when they spotted the Mothman, like in nearby distance. Um, They said that the eyes glowed so brightly that it would suggest that it's not an animal or a man, but something more like a paraphysical entity, which I think we talked about a little bit. Um, But it could even be some kind of machine run thing. Um, And also I was thinking about this afterward. I was like, well, you know what? They've never, like there were not really tracks that people could find of the Mothman, particularly because it could fly in the air, but they, they never found any tracks of it walking anywhere. And they really never found any mysterious droppings either, (laughs) which kind of suggests that it might not be a biological creature, right? After hundreds and hundreds of sightings in the same area, you would think that there would be some kind of dropping that they could test and deduce what it was. But hmm, maybe it suggests it's a type of machine. Who knows? But that's a good point. If it doesn't eat and it doesn't go to the bathroom, like how? what do we do with that? You know, how do we... Everything, <laughs> it should, you know, it should do those things. But it, if it doesn't, it then what, it, what is it exactly? Um, right. How does it survive, right? Um, but I, I hadn't heard the technological, that's terrifying, like some sort of a machine Mothman yeah. thing. You yeah. Know? But, but we did cover in the Mothman Prophecies episodes that people were getting the radiation, the same sort of radiation mm-hmm. issues that they were getting with UFOs from those eyes. Um, yeah, yeah. The the burns. Conjunctivitis and the burns. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So All are right. there is that is that So the, that's conundrums of the sky, and then we have mysteries of the sea before we part. Great. <laughs> so mysteries of the sea, David. What do we already know? <laughs> Anything. Uh, we know Creatures that we're, of the sea. we're on the hunt for mer people, that's for sure. Ah, uh, mer people. Okay, yeah. We know Aquaman 2 will be releasing at some point. <laughs> we haven't covered a whole lot of more sea like anomalies. Yeah, we haven't covered a whole lot of sea anomalies. And no, I mean, we haven't, but like people know about the Loch Ness monster, right? I mean, that's nothing new. Sure. I guess they do. I mean, maybe you don't, maybe someone out there doesn't know who the Loch Ness monster is, and now you're going to be like, oh man, nobody let me know. Well, we're letting you know now. So what do you know <laughs> that you're not telling us? <laughs> it's what I just read in John Keel's book from 1970. Uh, he starts off with saying that we know more about the moon than we know about the Atlantic Ocean. That there's just so much of, like, the Earth is covered in four-fifths water, right? And there's so much that we haven't explored. We've barely explored the surface. And, and of course, this... This is what he's saying in 1970. We've explored more of the ocean since then, but still, still, people are like, we have no idea what's in the great deep depths of the ocean 10,000 leagues below the sea. Yeah, it's possible there's undiscovered beings, creatures. There's like bioluminescent fish and stuff down there, like procreating and doing their thing all by themselves, living on what seems like an entirely different planet, (laughs) right? Um, Sure. uh, Here's a... a 
fun little interesting tidbit. In 1969, um, researchers sent a Simrod sonar detector down to the ocean floor, um, and it it like immediately picked up this 200-foot-long creature that was walking on the ocean floor 300 feet below sea level, and they said it looked roughly like an extinct dinosaur, but they were never able to find it. <laughs> Imagine like an extinct or just imagine like a prehistoric bottom feeder that just never ran yeah. out of food or right. anything, you know? Um, and and why would it be extinct if, yeah, if they just live off of the the bottom of the ocean? That's forever. They could repopulate and, and they probably live a long time because they're cold-blooded. They move slowly. They just get bigger and bigger, just like fish. There's probably so, so many mysteries of the ocean that we don't understand. And it's interesting how it kind of overlaps this idea that like Bigfoot could exist in like forests, like sort of the wild, the deep, deep wilds that people don't go into yet or yeah. maybe never will. And and how the ocean is even more so that kind of a realm where maybe we're not the masters of the ocean. You know, we might we, <laughs> we might are be, definitely not. We might be destroying them, but we're not the we're not their masters. You know, we're not the dominant life form down there. Maybe. Yeah. Um, so mainly, um, John Keel talked about sea serpents and uh, their their existence, and I think particularly that's because um, one of the biggest sea serpent stories that's not the Loch Ness monster um, happened in Silver Lake, New York, which is where he's from. Um, but first I'm going to talk about like the first time that they discovered a baby sea serpent. They said it was like three feet long. It was discovered in 1817 in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Um, these fishermen discovered it. It was three and a half feet long and had 32 humps on its back. Right. So it's just like a little sea snake kind of thing. But again, these scientists just wouldn't accept its existence. They're like, no, this is not a thing that we don't know what it is. <laughs> like you created this, you made it up, or it's just a deformed whatever piece of seaweed. Um, they didn't even believe giant squids existed until 1880. So we're like 70 years prior to that, right? So now we know that giant squid do exist and in all sorts of types and forms as well. Mm. Um, he also mentions what's called a globster. And I was like, ooh, globster. And I like <laughs> looked it up immediately. It's like lobster with a G in front. Um, but it's these unidentified organic masses that just wash up um, from the sea. And I think a lot of times they turn out to be like whale carcasses that were like deteriorating. But they're undecipherable for what they are because they're just like coagulated nastiness from the ocean that just like, comes up on the shore after Weird. a long time. Yeah. So they're called globsters. They look like you should look up pictures of them. They're real nasty. Like lo uh, they look like just hairy lumps. And sometimes there can be like tusks <laughs> sticking out of them or like bones kind of thing. It's just completely unidentifiable. So, okay. Globsters. Um, and then we'll talk about the great sea serpent of Silver Lake, New York. Um, so, again, this is where John Keel was from. This is the first time the sea serpent was spotted was in 1855 on Friday the 13th of July at 9 p.m. Um, and this is a direct quote from the book. So, four men and two boys were in a boat fishing on Silver Lake in the northwestern part of New York State. It was shortly after dusk, and the stars brightly illuminated the waters. Suddenly, off the stern of the boat, a long object appeared. It first looked like a log, 80 or 100 feet long, and the group did not pay too much attention to it until it disappeared abruptly and reappeared moments later in another position. 
Its head, it could no longer be called a log, was now within three rods of the boat, and as it approached, the waves parted on either side of the boat as if it were leisurely approaching. The fishermen were somewhat dismayed and wasted no time in trying to cut the anchor rope, but they dropped the knife into the water and had to haul the anchor up by hand. The thing bobbed beneath the waves again and again, reappearing behind their stern. Everyone in the boat had a fair view of the creature and concur in representing it as a most horrid and repulsive-looking monster. On the opposite side of the boat, about a rod and a half to the northeast, the other end of the serpent was in full view, lashing the water with its tail. When the forward part descended upon the water, it created waves that nearly capsized the boat and suspended regular operations of the oars. It had many sightings after this and attracted lots of attention and tourists. The town was booming, nightly sightings were common, but they could never catch this sea serpent, right? So all these people are coming from all over the the U.S. and Canada and probably many other places just to see this sea serpent that is like terrorizing these waters and no one can ever find it and the town starts booming like people are coming there and staying there it's like big tourist city and all of a sudden the sea serpent just goes away it's never seen again Hmm. years go by and um like the town's doing fine and such but you know now it's just a part of their history that as uh, then as so much as like being currently terrorized by this monster um and where was this again a couple uh, Silver Lake, New York. Where, oh, coming full circle, where John Keel is from. <laughs> yes. A couple years afterward, uh, a fire burnt down this hotel that this man owned. And uh, the man who owned it ended up, like, fleeing. He went to Canada and no one ever saw him again. And they discovered in the hotel, in the attic of the hotel that there was a similar-sized created wooden sea serpent. Um, that had been built and turns out that the whole thing was a hoax and it was completely man-made the man who built it planned for it to be sunk in the lake and he created air pockets in it to help it bob and put weights on the bottom of it to make it look realistic and like move back and forth in the water and he did it to help boost tourism in the town and after it worked uh, he took it out he was like we don't need this anymore the town's doing well the economy is back up and we're good to go Um, and even though he created the hoax and escaped to Canada, people considered him a hero for saving the town economically. <laughs> that sound that that would make like a fun film, you know, uh, Silver yeah. Lake monster. I mean, could but so so there is no people do not believe this sea serpent was actually there. How could he fool them with a wooden? thing i have no a, a idea. wooden puppet yeah. basically you know yeah well he and it's yeah he they described it as it was like painted green and it had yellow polka dots all over it and i don't know but. well but hoaxes are part of the deal like we have to acknowledge that, that that's part of the deal like there are people who will create crop circles they will pretend to be bigfoot <laughs> i don't know why those people spend their time doing that but you know <laughs> we have to acknowledge that that's definitely part of the part of the deal um that's what makes the job harder though because of so much that's why there is so much skepticism behind it because sure yeah a a situation like that will be like yeah see that's what the Loch Ness monster is it's all just bs like you know um (laughs) that's that's what that's part of what helps the supernatural hide in a lot of ways that ridicule and 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 it's also part of what the government can use to discredit 
the supernatural, you know, because they don't yeah. want to, they don't want to talk about it. They're not going to get into it with, uh, with the public. So they'll just point to it as being ridiculous and, and everybody's satisfied with that answer. Um, and that's it. Yeah. Good stuff. We need to cover more sea, sea creatures, uh, real ones, hopefully, or, or whatever they are, you know, like uh, anomalies of the sea. And I wonder, you know, we joke around about mer people, uh, but I wonder if there are beings that are like us, you know, that, that, uh, are there stories like that? You know, cause you yeah. made the distinction. Cave between, people too. Like, sure. Cave creatures. Like a whole race of, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh God. That's like, always made me curious. There's that really great horror film. Um, the Descent. Oh yeah. That one's so, so good. good. Such a great film. Yeah. Really, really, yeah, it is. really well done and creepy. I, I watched that one night while my girlfriend was asleep next to me. And I was just like, if she watched this, this would traumatize her. Cause she's so, <laughs> she's sensitive to horror. And I was just like, cause I was thinking this movie's not so bad, but it was like, it was actually pretty creepy, pretty well done. It's a, yeah. And it sticks with you. Like I, yeah. I, I watched it when it came out and that's going on like what? 15 years now <laughs> and more, probably more. And, uh, yeah, I still have, like, vivid imagery of that movie. Creepy. They should do Creepy. another version of that movie, but, like, from the perspective of the women. And the whole movie would just be, like, in the dark. There would be, like, you couldn't <laughs> see anything. No action. Because yeah. that's the creepy <laughs> aspect, right? Is that from their perspective, they really can't see a thing. Like, they're using torches. Well, unless they have their, like, headlamps. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Flashlights. And those creatures, I think, use sonar. But yeah, I mean, we're talking about realms of this planet that are not dominated or not completely dominated by humans, you know? And, and you know, I think we all kind of wonder sometimes when we drive by long stretches of country like I did recently or or you go into the ocean, you look out to the vast, uh, you know, untainted landscape and think to mm-hmm. yourself, like, is there something else out there? You know, are there are there totally. mysteries that we haven't uncovered? I'm I'm just gonna leave you with uh one one little paragraph that uh, Keel put at the end of the book, which I think covers exactly what you're saying, just in his words. Um, he says, "To recognize the full nature of the phenomenon, you must carefully study all of the parts. Witchcraft, voodoo, spiritualism, and black magic are just as important as little green men and bilious giants with glowing green eyes." Once you begin to understand how the many parts dovetail together, you will discover that the invisible world has exercised a peculiar influence over the affairs of men. This will lead you into a study of human history and eventually into philosophy. That's it for today's feast. Thank you for dining with us. Hold your cosmic appetites for next time. And reach out to us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram at Cosmic Feast. 